together. It always warms my heart as I, I get to tell the story. Uh, and then as we were just working through different things we believe at King's Church and, and just the, the role of, of membership, uh, the beauty of membership, my heart was warmed once again of the beauty of the church, that, that Christ has established his church, yes, universally, but also locally in these, in these cities across the U.S. and across the world. Uh, we have been studying for the last four months, we've been studying the book of Philippians, written to the saints in Philippi. Paul wrote this book to a local church, one that he dearly loved. His, his beloved is what he calls them, his, his brothers and sisters in Christ. He loved this church, and my heart once again was stirred as, as, we, get to, as we got to recount what the Lord is doing here at King's and, Lord willing, bringing more uh, members into this local body for us to continue to see the gospel advance through multiplying disciples, leaders, and churches. That's our hope. Today, we finish our Philippian series. It's been a joy to work through this book over the past four months. We've been given a, a beautiful picture of Jesus and his church through this book. Caleb's already mentioned some of them, but we've learned to rejoice in the Lord, to suffer for the sake of the gospel, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to live in unity, to see and emulate those around us who are imitating Christ. We got to see this, this beautiful hymn of who Christ is and what he has accomplished through his humiliation and exaltation in Philippians 2. And we, we, we got to see this, this beautiful reminder that, that one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul has given us a wonderful letter that we get to complete today. As we close out this book, may we continue to see the beauty of Jesus and may that direct everything we say, think, and do. This morning, we're, we're going to close it out. Philippians 4, 10 to 23. And this is, this is kind of the main idea. In Christ, we are a generous and content people. We are a generous and content people. Just real quick, how many of y'all just find yourself content 24-7? Okay, cool, good, good stuff. All right, let's read. Let's read Philippians 4, 10 to 23, and then I want to pray for us. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to pick one up in front of you. We're on page 923. We've been on this page for the past month. So Philippians 4, 10 to 23, this is what it says. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was, it was kind of you to share my trouble. 
And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. In Christ, we are a generous and content people. Paul concludes, concludes this letter by actually giving us the reason behind writing this letter. He's thankful for their gift. He's thankful for them. He's thankful that they've sent a gift through Epaphroditus. He's thankful for their continued partnership with him in seeing the gospel advanced. In this final this, this final piece of Philippians, I believe there are two key characteristics of those who follow Christ. And we see them from Paul's example and the Philippians' example. When we submit our lives to Jesus and follow him, we will be a generous and content people. A generous and content people. So let's begin with generosity. A generous people. Paul begins this final section. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord. This is a fitting conclusion, right? I rejoiced in the Lord. Paul, you've been telling us throughout to to rejoice. You've been showing us your joy. You, You find joy. This you find joy in the preaching of the gospel, even when those who preach the gospel have mixed motives. Wow, joy. We've been talking about joy for the last four months. I pray that our lives are more joyful than they were in January. On this day, May 7th, I pray that our lives are more joyful than they were when we began this study because we've seen the beauty of Jesus and we've seen that our joy is rooted in Christ alone and not in our circumstances and not in in our experiences. Paul is in prison. Y'all remember this. I rejoice in the Lord greatly. I rejoice in the Lord greatly. So he begins... Rejoicing, reminding them of their, of why he's rejoicing. And I want to show us through, through these few verses in verse 10 and then in verses 14 to 18, kind of, kind of three, three truths about generosity. The first is, is generosity leads to joy in others. Paul says, I have joy in the Lord that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. We see Paul's joy. He was an an apostle who had his eyes set on seeing the gospel go forth to places it had never been preached. He was always on the move. He planted a church in Philippi, and then he went to Thessalonica, and then he went to to Athens. Then he just kept moving. He wanted to continue the work that, that the Lord Jesus had set him apart to do to see eyes open, to see those who walk in darkness turn to the light. This was Paul's desire. And and as he moved, we know he worked as a tent maker. 
So he provided for his needs many, of the t- many, many times. So there wasn't always opportunity for the Philippians or for other churches to partner with him. Yet, here, we see that there was an opportunity. And the Philippians were quick to meet it. And in meeting that, out of their generous spirit, Paul was, joy- was joyful. It leads to joy in others. He continues on in verse 14. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. Just think about this. Paul is in prison, and he receives a gift from a beloved brother, Epaphroditus. Think about the joy that would fill him. Troubled. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. You sent a gift through Epaphroditus to share in my trouble. That's joy. To have someone come alongside of you in the midst of heartache, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, that that brings joy to your life. Oh, that we would be a people that are generous and that generosity would lead to joy in others. In verse 15, Paul reminds them of their faithfulness in giving to the work from the beginning. He says, when I left you, when I left Macedonia, Philippi is in Macedonia, when I left Macedonia, you were the only ones who partnered with me. You were the only ones who continued to give, who continued to see the gospel go forth. And he reminds them of this. When Christ transforms us, right? The Philippians were transformed by the gospel, by hearing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, by by repenting of their sins and turning to Christ. When Christ transforms us, giving should overflow from our lives. The New Testament uses two terms, generously and cheerfully in giving. We want to be generous givers and we want to be cheerful givers. Not only... Not only does generosity lead to joy in others, it also leads to eternal fruit. Eternal fruit. Verse 17. This is what Paul says. Not that I seek the gift. He actually says this phrase, not that I, twice. You probably picked up on it in verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. And then in verse 17, not that I seek the gift. He wants them to to see, man, I'm not... I'm grateful for your gift, but that's not the only reason I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for your partnership. I'm grateful for who you are. I'm grateful for what God's doing in your life. Because I'm content. I'm good. Jesus is enough. But here he says in verse 17, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Generosity leads to eternal fruit. You see, Paul, in verse 17, he's not seeking the gift. He's grateful for the gift, but he didn't seek it out. He's not money hungry. He, he's not one who, who pursues riches in this world. Paul, Paul knows the danger of money. He warns us against that, just as Jesus does. He, he knows how easily money can ruin his ministry if that's his goal. We don't want to be money hungry. He says that he seeks the fruit from that gift. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. What, is, what does that mean? That increases to your credit. At the heart of the Philippians giving, right? The Philippians are, are generous in their giving. They're giving gifts to Paul so that the gospel will advance. So Paul used their gifts for fruitfulness now and for fruitfulness later. 
What he's saying is through your giving, the gospel's going forth. And no, you're not a part of the work right here, tangibly, hands-on. But what you're doing is you're giving so that the gospel will continue to go forth. And this is storing up, storing up treasure in heaven for you. You see, they're all about, and Paul wants them to be all about, depositing in heaven, not depositing in earthly things. Paul used their gifts for fruitfulness, and that would lead to eternal fruit to their credit. I want you to think about this for a minute. Over the last six months, we've been able to send out uh, one, one lady to, to South Asia to be a missionary, to go and, and share the gospel, to come alongside a team there, to encourage that team, and we're giving to support that. We've also been able to, in January, to send out a church plant that we were able to partner with. We're giving to that. We are not there, right? We're not hands-on in South Asia. We're not hands-on in Concord. Yet, we're giving, we're supporting. We don't get to experience the day-to-day work where, where Megan is or with, with Risen in Concord. But as we pray, as we give, Paul here says, hey, you're going to reap an eternal reward. Let us be a people who invest in kingdom work, storing up treasures in heaven. Let's make deposits in the bank of heaven. Let's not get caught up on things of this world where, where moth and rust will destroy. But let's lay up treasures in heaven that will last for eternity. That's Paul's longing for them. That's Paul's longing for them, that as they give, he seeks the fruit that increases to their credit, that, that, that accrues to their account, this future account. He goes on. He says, yes, generosity leads to the joy of others. Generosity leads to an eternal reward, but also generosity leads to pleasing the Lord. Our generosity, and just... just just, just pause for a second. Our generosity pleases God. <laughs> when, we, when we give, not just money, right? It's not about money, guys. It's not about money. When we use our time, our talents, our treasures to see the kingdom advanced, this pleases the Lord. Our our tiny little lives <laughs> can please God. This should blow your mind. We can please the Lord. There's great joy and delight in that. And Paul uses some terminology in verse 18 that, that should take your mind back to the Old Testament. He says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And then he talks about those gifts. Right? Epaphroditus has brought this and these are the gifts that you sent. It's a fragrant offering. It smells good to God. When Noah gets off the ark with his family, after all of that flood, all of that rain, he gets off the ark and what does he do? He immediately makes a sacrifice and it's a fragrant offering to God. It's an aroma that's pleasing to the Lord. A fragrant offering, a, a sacrifice acceptable. So it's an, it's an acceptable sacrifice. And it's a sacrifice that pleases God. The, the Levitical offerings throughout, I'm, I'm, I'm reading through numbers right now in the morning. Man, like, and, and, and I read Leviticus a few, a few months ago. 
Like we just see like when, when the high priest and when the, when the priests come and make sacrifices, it's a, it's a sacrifice pleasing and acceptable to God. And when they're that, God, God passes over their sin. Here, Paul says, your gift was, was a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, a pleasing sacrifice. Paul exhorts us in, in Romans 12.1 that this should really be our lives, our whole lives, that we should be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Is your life that? Is your life one that is holy and acceptable to God? This morning in our membership class, we were reading 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. In that, this is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. A new creation. Well, how does that happen? You see, those new creations that Paul's writing about in 2 Corinthians are lives that are holy and acceptable to God. Well, well, how does that happen in my life? How, how do I become a new creation? Well, God, or Paul tells us this. This is what he says. He says that we can be reconciled to God because of Christ. Because he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our sin. Is your life a fragrant offering to God right now? Maybe not, but you know how it can be? You can be cleansed of your sin. You can be washed white as snow because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. He took our sin. He took the the smallest of sins, lying to a spouse, stealing a piece of gum from the store, cheating on a test, cheating on income taxes. He took those. He took those on the cross. And he has exchanged our sin with his righteousness. And now when when God looks at us, if we have confessed our sin, turned to Jesus, we can be saved. And now God looks at us and he sees the righteousness of Christ and, and we're a fragrant offering to him. We're, we're a sacrifice that is, that is acceptable. He says, yes, you've been adopted into my family. You're my son. You're my daughter. We're acceptable to him. We're pleasing to God. If, if this is something you haven't done, or if you look at your life, and you're like, no, I'm not, a, I'm not an acceptable sacrifice. Do you know the sin that I've committed? There's hope at the cross. You can become an acceptable sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God right now if you'll, if you'll turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. I want, I want to invite you, if you haven't done this, I want to invite you to do it right now. Pray to God. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. And, and if, if you do this today, I, I would love to talk with you. One of our pastors would love to talk to you because that is new life in Christ. And, and with new life, comes a way of living. We're new creations in Christ, holy and acceptable to God. So how are you spending your time, talents, and treasures? For earthly pleasures or 
for kingdom advancement, for, for earthly things that will soon pass away, or for things that are going to last forever. Don't waste your life on things that will soon pass away. Let us be generous. We also see in this passage, not only those in Christ, not only are they generous, but they're content. They're content. This is hard. (laughs) This is a hard text. Contentment, right? Paul says it's learned, it's a secret, and it's rooted in Christ. It's learned, it's a secret, and it's rooted in Christ. One pastor, Jeremiah Burroughs, this is how he defines contentment. He calls it a rare jewel. jewel. And he says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. It, it's understanding that God is sovereign and that he is a good father. And we can be content in what happens. We can be content. It's learned. It's learned. Paul says it's learned in verse, verse 11. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. It's learned in any situation to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to be humbled. And, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I've learned it. Contentment is learned through the, through the good and the bad, through the, the humble, through the humility and through abounding, through facing plenty or through placing, facing hunger and facing plenty. Right? This is, it's learned. Paul not only says it's learned through all circumstances, he also says it's a secret that must be learned. That's what he says in verse, in verse 12. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. It's a secret learned. We learn the secret of contentment through a wide array array of experiences and circumstances. D.A. Carson, New Testament theologian, this is what he says. The secret of contentment is not normally learned in posh circumstances or in deprived circumstances, but in exposure to both. His contentment is utterly independent of circumstances. I was meeting with a, with a brother this past week who moved here seven years ago. He's an immigrant. He, he's still trying to figure out um, life. He, he, came from, uh, he came from Nigeria. And, and <laughs> I'm, I'm preaching on this this week, and I'm talking to him. And I'm like, brother, you have, you've gone through so much. You've gone through so much trying to get here, getting a degree, and now looking for, for work and jobs. And, you know, a lot, of, a lot of us Americans, a lot of us don't quite grasp or, or we haven't experienced this, this idea of, of deprived circumstances. Right? I'm not like, I know that's, that's a blanket statement. And you may be thinking, no, I, I have. And praise God that you have because through that, we learn true contentment. But we ha- a lot of us haven't. We've, we've, had, we've kind of had everything given to us. So how do we learn contentment? 
Well, it's a lifelong battle. It's a lifelong learning. It's a, it's, we, we never come to a place, I think, that we are just like, no, I've got this. It's kind of like humility. Are you humble? Yeah, I'm humble. <laughs> you know, like, are you content? I mean, I pursue contentment. I want to find my contentment in Christ. Exposure to both builds this contentment, this secret. Contentment, it's a learned secret. It does not come naturally. I want you to think about this for a minute. Last week in, in small group, we talked through this a little bit. In our culture, we struggle with contentment because many of us are playing the comparison game. Right? We're playing the comparison game. We look at our peers and we say, man, they're driving a nice car. Man, they're living in a nice house. How, why, why can't I have that? That, that person has this. They, they came out of college and they got this awesome job and I'm, I'm searching for one. That family has that. Comparison is the enemy of contentment. If you live your life comparing yourself to others, you will never find contentment because there's always going to be someone who has the next best thing right, that you want. Let us not play this game. Let us not be sucked into this game that our culture always throws at us. You see it in ads. You see it on Instagram. Right? Like this, people post things that aren't real. It's just a little piece of their life. And they're like, look at this. Right? Don't play the comparison game. Don't do it. Envy, pride, jealousy has no place in the Christian's life. So how is contentment possible when we live in a culture that, that always is vying for our attention? That always is saying, climb the ladder. It's saying, hey, buy the next best thing. How is contentment possible? Well, Paul answers it in verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Our contentment is rooted in Christ. Your contentment is not rooted in circumstances. If it was, you would not be content because you always want more or, you, or you, you would say that's not enough. Contentment is rooted in Christ. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the answer to contentment. It only comes through knowing Jesus. It's only in Christ, in hunger and abundance, in humility and in abounding, in all circumstances, Christ strengthens us to be content. This verse is not about sports. This verse is not about, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can, I can hit this homer this time. Or I can win the Super Bowl. That's not what it's about. Paul says it's learned. It's a secret. It's in Christ alone. And he does provide. God provides the strength to overcome all situations. Listen to Burroughs as he helps us understand our contentment being rooted in Christ. All creatures, you'll, you'll see the quote in a minute. I, I didn't put the whole quote. All creatures in the world say contentment is not in us. Riches, riches say contentment is not in me. No, contentment is higher. The soul which by coming into the school of Christ, knowing Christ, right? Learning Christ, the school of Christ. By understanding the glorious mysteries of the gospel, comes to see the vanity of all things in this world. Paul told us in Philippians 3, it's rubbish. Things of this world is rub, are rubbish. Is the soul that comes to true contentment. That soul says, 
I see that it's not necessary for me to be rich. Man, what a good word for Charlotte. What a good word for people in our city. The, the, the economic capital, right, of our state. The banking capital. I see that it's not necessary for me to be rich, but it is necessary for me to make peace with God. It's not necessary that I have a pleasurable life in this world, but it's absolutely necessary that I should have a pardon for my sin. It's not necessary that I should have honor and preferment, but it is necessary that I should have Christ as my portion and have my part in Jesus Christ and that I should be saved on the last day. Christ is sufficient. Christ is all you need. The riches of this world will soon pass. It'll pass. Christ is your portion. Christ is all you need. The other things are are pretty fine indeed. And I should be glad if God give me them. A fine house and income and clothes and advancement for my wife and children. This was written in the 1700s, by the way. These are comfortable things, but they're not the necessary things. I may have these and yet perish forever. No matter how poor I am, I may have what is absolutely necessary. That is what Christ and his gospel teaches me. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. So as we draw to a conclusion of Philippians and to this sermon, Paul gives us a fitting conclusion. He again gives us a beautiful picture of Christ in these final words from 13 to 23. In verse 13, we've already mentioned it. I'm not going to belabor the point anymore. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Christ strengthens us. He strengthens. For any and every circumstance we go through, whether it be abounding or whether it be low humility, whether it be abundance or facing hunger, Christ strengthens. He supplies. He supplies. Verse 19 Paul says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God supplies all our needs. He supplies all our needs, but where does this supply come from? The riches of glory in Christ Jesus. Again, everything's rooted in Christ. The eternal, infinite riches that God supplies are are from Christ. They are found in Christ. They never run out. He's the fountain that never runs dry. And as Paul thinks on these riches that are supplied to his people, he bursts into doxology. Just as we began this service in doxology in Romans 11, in Romans 11, Paul is unpacking the doctrines of election in free will, right? He, he's, like, he's like, take on this church. And then he, he gets finished writing the end of chapter 10 And then he gets into chapter 11 and he just bursts forth in doxology. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's thinking on the the riches of the glory that are in Christ Jesus. And he says, verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He just bursts into worship. He has to. When we see the beauty of Christ, it causes us to worship. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then as as Paul draws to a conclusion, he greets the saints in Christ. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. I think that's neat. The gospel is even making its way into Caesar's household. 
right? It's making its way into the palace. It's making its way into the government. It is going throughout that whole city where he is. But then Paul closes, not with just a simple closing. Paul's openings and closings of these books, yes, they're similar. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Or here, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, with your spirit. They are packed full of theology. Jesus gives us grace. Jesus gives us grace. He strengthens us. He supplies us for everything we need. And he gives grace. This is amazing. This is amazing. He closes this book with grace. The grace that comes from Christ. This free gift that we do not deserve. He longs for us to be given grace for our lives. This grace that saves. This grace that continue saving this grace that provides the motivation for sanctification. Oh, that our, our lives would be full of grace. That this grace would be with your spirit all of life. As we conclude the book and as our, as our band, well, as, as Eric and Catherine come back up <laughs> to lead us in our final song, just want to remind us of several themes in this book. From joy to partnership in the gospel, from the person and work of Christ, suffering for the sake of the gospel, unity in the gospel and in the church. Before I, before I close our time in prayer, I would like for each of us to think about these questions. These questions. Where have you seen the, wor the Lord work in your life through this book? Where have you been challenged by this book? Where have you been encouraged? For, for our guest today, that this is your first sermon here, think about this, this passage. Where have you been challenged? Where have you been, been encouraged? So let's, let's, take, let's take one minute of just silence and just think through these questions, and then we'll, we'll pray, and then we'll sing, I Surrender All. Father, to you, be glory forever and ever. Amen.